You know he's going to expect that next week, right? <laughs> Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and while they were gazing in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, we are grateful for this opportunity to gather as your church, to sing songs of praise to you, to lift up your name, which is worthy of our praise. Father, we are grateful for your holy and inspired word, complete and not lacking anything. It is available for us for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. We ask today, Father, that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we dig deeper into your word. May you receive all the glory, honor, and praise. It's in the name of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray all of these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. So first, a brief introduction to the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by Luke, the same author of Luke. As best as we can tell, written between around 60 and 80 AD. And We have a pretty good guess of this because the book of Acts ends abruptly 
with the Apostle Paul in Rome under house arrest. Many scholars see this as evidence of the time period uh, because if it was written after Paul was released, the belief is that that would have been included. So we have a pretty good idea as to when this was written. Now the question of why the book of Acts was written, the, we can actually look back at the book of Luke to get a better understanding of why Luke wrote Luke and Acts. The book of Luke was written to document Christ's earthly ministry, and the book of Acts was written to document what was witnessed after the ascension of Christ. The book of Acts is the account of Christ's work on earth through the disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, since Acts is basically a sequel to Luke, we can look back at the beginning to get a clearer understanding of why Luke wrote the book. So uh, turn with me to Luke. There we go. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Turn back a couple books to the left. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I want to highlight a few words here to get a clearer understanding of why Luke wrote the book of Luke's and Acts. Many. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, we know today we have the benefit of hindsight that we have multiple accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. He wanted to record the things that have been accomplished among us. Again, the book of Luke is an account of what Christ did in his earthly ministry, and the book of Acts is basically a sequel detailing the account of Christ's work on earth through his disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit. When events are written down, when history is written down, it simply becomes harder to forget. And the disciples knew this. They knew that they needed to document what they had experienced, what they had seen. They were eyewitnesses, having followed all things closely. There we go. Luke is not writing as someone who is fourth, fifth, or sixth in the game of telephone. Luke was an eyewitness. Luke was there on the ground. He saw what Christ did firsthand. He was an original source. Luke wrote an orderly account. Now, Luke is a doctor, and as many doctors do, they, Luke had an acute attention to detail, 
And one fun example of this is Luke 3, 1 through 2. Bear with me here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Albion, during the high priesthood of Annas, Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there are no less than ten references to people, places, and times in this passage. Luke wrote an orderly account, including timestamps, geolocation, and facial recognition, all of which can be recorded and evidenced in historical documents. This is kind of like when I ask my grandma, how are we related to so-and-so? You know, I see somebody's last name that kind of looks familiar, and I call up my grandma and say, are we related to this person? And she goes on this, this long list of, well, this person from this city, and this person who we got the recipe for the sausage, and this person, and this person's <laughs> uncle. It's kind of like a beautiful mind with the pins and the string. But she knows. She knows how people are connected. And she's right. And maybe somewhere it's written down, but that's what Luke did here. Luke gave us evidence that's irrefutable. We see a similar type of defense in Acts 1, 3, uh, where Luke uses specific details. He says, Jesus presented himself alive, uh, many proofs, and he appeared to them for 40 days. It's also important to note that Luke wrote down his orderly account. Often critics of Christianity claim that the Bible is just an old dusty book. It's been translated a bunch of times, and there's no way to know exactly what was originally written. But thanks to men like Luke, who wrote an orderly account, we have over 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts. To put that into context, uh, it's estimated that Homer's Iliad, we have around 2,000 copies. Brothers and sisters, we can have confidence that we are reading the inspired words of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit through men like Luke. So Luke wrote an orderly account in the book of Luke to describe in detail what happened during Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke wrote an orderly account in the book of Acts of what Jesus continued to do after he was ascended into heaven through the Holy Spirit-empowered disciples. So Jesus is gone. Now what? What do we do now? Not that long ago, many of us celebrated uh, high school graduation. Uh, for some of us, it was just a, a few months ago. For others, it was a, an undisclosed and seemingly growing number of years ago. Um, and as any recent graduate knows, there's one question that will be asked many, many, many times. So where are you going to go? What are you going to do? What's next? And even for the strongest type A planner, the I have everything figured out type of person, there is this sense of apprehension at the prospect of a major shift in life, a major shift in life circumstances. And this is the scene 
that Luke is setting for us in the beginning of Acts. Jesus had been with the disciples for around three years, day in and day out. He was crucified, resurrected three days later, and now he had been with them for about 40 days. The disciples were comfortable around Jesus. Jesus was the focus, not them. All of this was about to change. In Acts 1, 9 through 11, we read that, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So now the disciples have graduated. Let's look deeper into the instructions that Christ left for them. Number one, receive power from the Holy Spirit. In verses 4 to 5, we read, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The very first thing that we should notice about this passage is the abundantly clear Trinitarian language. Now, the the Trinity is not explicitly defined in Scripture. Rather, it is implicitly referenced over and over. The Trinity is woven through Scripture. And this is a great example. We see the promise of the Father. You heard from me, Christ, baptized with the Holy Spirit. We'll see additional Trinitarian language shortly in verse 8. The 1689 Baptist Confession is a great resource and has this to say about the nature of the Trinity. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have been the same, have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. When we are equipped with the Holy Spirit, we are equipped with God. Now, rather than going into an in-depth study of the Trinity, uh, which I'm woefully not equipped to do, uh, I'd point you to one of the funnier videos on YouTube. Um, If you haven't watched this, it's... um, Oh, three or four minutes, well worth your time, or a couple times. St. Patrick's Bad Analogies. It's fantastic and funny, Um, but I digress. It took a lot of restraint not to actually play this. Um, So I do have some restraint. As we look at this passage, we we see that the Holy Spirit is clearly called out clearly identified, but the Holy Spirit is not new. This is not the first time in Scripture that we see the Holy Spirit referenced and at work. We see the Holy Spirit way back in Genesis, Genesis 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And again, this Trinitarian language is throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The Holy Spirit is not new to the disciples. But the Holy Spirit does appear to be taking on a new role or some different manifestation of his role. Specifically, the Holy Spirit equips the disciples 
and us with four things. First, more effective in witness and in ministry. We see this one right in Acts 1, verse 8. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit equips the disciples and equips us with more effective proclamation of the gospel. We see this in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Holy Spirit equips the disciples and equips us with power for victory over sin, over Satan, and over demonic forces. We see this clearly in the first accounts of the early church, uh, specifically Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit equips the disciples and equips us with spiritual gifts. We see this very clearly. Uh, we see a good example of spiritual gifts empowered by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Again, note the Trinitarian language. But the same Spirit... There are a variety of services, but the same Lord, and there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God. Again, the Trinity is woven throughout Scripture. Now, one of the best examples of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples is found in the very next chapter of Acts, chapter 2. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit on the disciples in Jerusalem during Pentecost, and then Immediately in verse 14, we read the account of Peter's sermon. Peter's sermon goes on for about 30 verses. This same Peter, a disciple who not that long ago denied Jesus three times. This same Peter, who is now empowered by the Holy Spirit, passionately proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. Luke's account of Peter's sermon concludes this way in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, Peter, uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
a recent tweet by Daryl Harrison makes this point very well. He says, I enjoy reading the book in the book of Acts of people coming to faith in Christ simply by hearing the gospel preached. No gimmicks, no tricks, just the pure, unfiltered gospel being believed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing has changed. The gospel works the same way today. Uh, Daryl Harrison is a uh, podcast, podcaster, podcastee, um, with, with another gentleman. They run the Just Thinking podcast. Um, it's a long-form podcast, so you gotta, you gotta buckle in, because I think the last one they did was about three hours long. Um, but it's, it's worth it, and uh, absolutely fantastic. The other, the other place I would point you is the For the Gospel podcast. Um, Kosti Hen puts this on, um, the one that he did more recently entitled uh, Who is the Holy Spirit? Absolutely fantastic. That's, that's shorter form, about 20 minutes long. You could do that in one car ride. The other one is like, I don't know, car ride to Traverse City or two. Um, but fantastic, fantastic resources. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit was working power, powerfully through Peter during Pentecost in Jerusalem that day. So while Jesus is now gone, and the disciples are on their own, they are equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. As followers of Christ, we have that same Holy Spirit dwelling in us, empowering us. We can have faith and trust that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can confidently go and proclaim the gospel in the same way Peter did. Not through our own work, not through our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we go about our God-given responsibilities, with our sword in one hand and our hammer in the other, take confidence in the fact that we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Jesus is gone. Now what? First, we receive the power from the Holy Spirit. Number two, we don't know when Christ will return. Be ready. In verse 7, we read, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Only God the Father knows when the second coming of Christ will occur. In Mark 13, we read, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. If you don't have a study Bible, I would encourage you to get one 
the study notes and cross-references are a fantastic guide. And the study notes for the, this verse in Mark say that the point is perpetual readiness while bearing God-given responsibilities. Now, instead of speculating about the specific time of end events, all disciples are to be vigilant. Mark says that we are to be on guard and keep awake. This imagery reminds me of Nehemiah and his instructions in chapter 4 of Nehemiah to the recently repatriated exiles who were rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah and his construction crew, they were working hard to rebuild the wall all around Jerusalem, and insults and ridicule were coming from all sides, from uh, specifically a couple of fellows nearby. And at one point, these guys even joked that the, simply the weight of a fox would knock over the wall. But they persevered. They continued building, and they worked. They worked hard. The insults and ridicule grew and eventually turned into threats of attack. And so in order to keep construction moving along, in Nehemiah we read that half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And it continues, those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders that had his, each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Now I, I looked for a good painting or some sort of a visual representation of this. I'm a visual learner, so these things help me. Um, I even looked for a good flannel graph. Um, uh, alas, they, they all left something to be desired here. But we can use that visual in our mind of staying on guard, staying alert, while bearing God-given responsibilities. Brothers and sisters, we all have God-given responsibilities. No matter what season of life we are in, we all have God-given responsibilities. What does it look like for you to go about your daily lives? Staying on guard. Staying alert with a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. 1 Peter 3 says this well. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor trouble, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. So Jesus is gone. Now what? We receive the power from the Holy Spirit. We don't know when Christ will return. Be ready. Be my witness. In verse 8, it says, Be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, the first thing to notice here is that this is Jesus' answer 
to the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The apostles did not get the answer that they were expecting, as is often the case. This is an indirect answer indicating that the disciples were not going to experience a military or political victory, but rather they are receiving new marching orders to spread the gospel. So what does it mean to be a witness? Very simply, to give an account or first-hand testimony of something that you have witnessed. And in this case, the disciples are proclaiming that they were first-hand witnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, why, why is it important? Why is it important that the disciples were first-hand witnesses to Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection? Simply put, this strengthens their case. Lee Strobel, author of the book Case for Christ, points out that we have no fewer than nine ancient sources, both inside and outside of the New Testament, confirming and corroborating that the disciples encountered the risen Christ. Nine ancient sources. Again, we can have confidence that what we have is accurate. The very first example of the disciples being Christ's witness in Jerusalem, uh, was in Jerusalem, and as we just discussed during Pentecost. Peter's sermon was the first of many sermons, many missionary journeys, and many times where we see the phrase, and there were added many that day, or there were added blank number of souls that day. From there, the disciples followed Christ's command to go out, to go out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In fact, the book of Acts follows this geographic outline. We see, it's a little small, but you see the green arrow pointing to Jerusalem. Chapters 1 through 7 talk about the ministry in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 talk about Judea and Samaria going out a little bit further. And then chapters 13 and 28 to the ends of the earth, to the known ends of the earth. It's also interesting to note that these concentric circles both represent physically further away locations, but they also represent different geographic, uh, I'm sorry, different people groups. Jerusalem is literally the center of Jewish worship, the disciples' own people. Judea is the Gentiles, Samaria the outcasts, and everyone else. Christ's instructions to the disciples, to us, are to start at home, then go out. Start here. Start where we are. Don't overthink your travel arrangements. Start proclaiming the gospel now. Right where we are. Now Christ has ascended into heaven, and his clear instructions are to wait, receive the Holy Spirit, then go. Go. Spread the good news. Preach the gospel and encourage people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Brothers and sisters, this starts at home. Let us get our houses in order so that we can strengthen our witness and go out and proclaim the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is gone. Now what? As we've just discussed, 
we, we have our work cut out for us. But there is an end game. Christ is returning. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This mirrors what we read in Daniel 7, where it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, we serve a risen Savior who reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father, who has been given dominion over his kingdom, and whose dominion will not pass away, and who will return. Peter says it well at the end of his second letter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Luke wrote these things down so that we can have an, an orderly account of what to do next. What to do after Christ's ascension. He wrote these things so that we can be prepared for Christ's return. We are instructed to be prepared with a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other, working diligently at our God-given responsibilities. Luke wrote these things so that we could more clearly understand the role of the Holy Spirit who works in and through us. He wrote these things as a step-by-step -step guide for us so that we know where to start, where to go, and who to go to. He wrote these things so that we can be confident of Christ's current reign from heaven and his promised return. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your promises. We are grateful that you keep your promises. Thank you for your promise to send your son. Thank you for the work of your son on the cross for us. Thank you that we can receive the Holy Spirit and be empowered to do your work by the Holy Spirit. 
Father, we are grateful for all that you bless us with. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, as we go this week, with our sword in one hand and our hammer in the other, that you would empower us to share your word with those around us as we go about our God-given responsibilities. Father, strengthen us to stay awake, to stay alert. Thank you. Thank you, Father. It's in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray all these things. And all of God's people said, Amen. Would you stand for our closing benediction? Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you as you go.